0: What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. I want the host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Kyle, here we are yet again on another Wednesday night. Yes, sir. Another episode for you guys, ready to rock and roll, get some topics to go over. Kev, you ready to dive into these topics we got? You already know. All right, so by and large, this is mostly going to be an episode largely around uh, the... Playoffs at this current moment in time were basically running straight into the second round of the NBA playoffs. A lot of these series are pretty much going into their second games, uh, respectively, in their series. Um, based on the series are going, uh, if you look at some of the teams that we're going to discuss, uh, the Heat are doing very well against the 76ers. But if you look at some of the other series, like the uh, the Bucks and Celtics, that's 1-1 apiece. Um, Looks like the Dallas and the Phoenix series is about to go to 2-0 in favor of Phoenix. But there's going to be a lot of um, series that we'll go over. The first one we're going to go over is the 76ers being down 2-0 against the Miami Heat. Uh, the Heat have looked very good. And I think it's safe to say at this point that Joel Embiid's presence for Philadelphia is being missed significantly. We'll talk about the impact that he may bring because it's being rumored that he could be back for Game 3 in Philly. We'll talk about his possible return. After that, we'll talk about James Harden, who's having a so-so series against Miami. Hasn't really played up to, I think, what we all expected coming into this series. I know Kevin has plenty to talk about with James Harden, since that's basically his favorite player of all time. Um After that, we'll transition to some of the Western Conference matchups. We're going to talk about the absolute, basically what I would call a classic performance from John Morant the other night in game two against Golden State, where he dropped 47 points. Uh, we'll talk about his impact in that game specifically, and the impact that he could bring the Grizzlies moving on into that series as well. After that, we'll talk about the upcoming game three matchup between the Celtics and the Bucks. Like I said, that series is split 1-1. That series does transition back to Milwaukee, so that'll be a very interesting game to go over. After that, We'll talk about Donovan Mitchell and his future in Utah. There have been a lot of rumors circulating that he could be on his way out from Utah. Rudy Gobert supposedly made a point to Utah's front office, basically saying they have to make a decision between either Gobert or Donovan Mitchell moving forward. So, a lot of moving pieces in Utah at this current moment in time should be a fun conversation. And then after that, we will discuss one football topic, and that has to do with Ryan Tannehill and Malik Willis. So Malik Willis was drafted by the Tennessee Titans in the NFL draft just a couple of days ago. Ryan Tannehill was asked a question about Malik's status moving forward. And essentially, Ryan Tannehill sees uh, no issue with helping Malik Willis establish himself as a quarterback since there's probably going to be a very interesting quarterback battle that will take place in Tennessee in the foreseeable future. It may not be this year, but I think... Down the road, we could potentially see that based on Tennessee's decision in this latest draft. So that's what we have for the agenda. Let's not waste any more time. Let's dive into the Philadelphia 76ers and the Miami Heat series. So like I said at the top, uh, the Miami Heat are up 2-0 in the series over the 76ers. Miami did exactly what they needed needed to do. Won both of their home games. The series does transition back to Philly for game three. Um, The biggest emphasis for Philly moving forward is whether or not Joel Embiid will return to the 76ers for Game 3. He's still recovering from a concussion and a fractured orbital bone that he suffered against the Toronto Raptors. First round of the playoffs, you could tell in the first two games that the 76ers have played against the Miami Heat. They definitely miss his presence, for God's sakes. Joel is an MVP candidate and is definitely having a sizable impact at Philly at this current moment in time. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, with the series between the 76ers and the Heat going back to Philly for Game 3, if Joel Embiid plays, do you think that he is essentially the 76ers' last hope for Philly to get back into the series?
1: Well, we all know that, obviously, he is averaging basically 30 points per game. This series or this season, Uh, we know that he is an MVP candidate. We know that he is one of the best players in the NBA at this current moment in time. So I would say that, yeah, he's more than likely going to be their only chance at them surviving this series. And even when he comes back and if he comes back, he may be limited and hindered because of the injury he sustained last round. Now I'm looking at this and I'm saying, are they going to force the ball inside to him now if he does come back for game three? Are they going to be looking to him to just kind of create his own offense as he normally does? Are they going to be taking shot attempts away from Tyrese Maxey and James Harden? You you kind of just don't know. There's just a lot of moving pieces here. But, of course, Joel Embiid on the court gives anybody, or should I say, you know, that gives Philly the best props. I can't really speak today. I apologize, guys. I'm a little under the weather, and Dallas is just absolutely shitting the bed. We're now down 18 in the fourth. It's just an incredible day for me. Um, Kind of just going through it right now uh like I said uh Joel Embiid on the court for anybody makes any team better and in this case obviously Philadelphia needs him more than anything they're going to need a better offensive output they're going to need a a better defensive anchor and quite frankly they're just going to need some help James Harden clearly can't carry the load by himself I mean for God's sake,s Tyrese Maxey is the leading scorer on this team with 34 points tonight and that is absolutely unacceptable for the price you paid to go and get James Harden for all the hype that James Harden had. It just goes to show that Joel was always the Batman to James Harden's Robin, and it is just blatantly apparent. James is turning the ball over. He's not shooting at an efficient clip. I mean, the list really goes on and on, but in terms of Joel Embiid being necessary on the court in order for Philadelphia to provide somewhat success on their own home court, I think is immediately pivotal. Again, I don't know to what extent he'll be available to play if he does, but... um, Joel on the court, he's got he's to gotta be given at least 15, 20 shot attempts because his impact is
0: unmatched, and obviously they miss him desperately. I mean, the way that I see it, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry. If the 76ers want to get back into the series, uh, they're going to need Joel on the court immediately. And when I look at this game four, not this game four, but this game two um, that the Heat had against the 76ers, I mean, they absolutely dominated uh, the paint down low on the defensive side when it came to just rebounds. I mean, for God's sakes, the Heat out-rebounded the 76ers 47-37. to Joel is on this team. That is a much more even split moving forward. And that's just from the defensive side. When you look at the offensive side, I mean, it's clear as day they missed Joel. And if they have any shot to win this series, Joel is going to have to be back in the lineup. So when I look at these first two games that Philly's had, I mean, they're getting decent production from, from Tyrese Maxey. And you could also look at guys like Tobias Harris that are chipping in and putting up solid numbers in the first two games, despite the fact that they've lost both games. And like Kevin said, they're just not getting enough production from James Harden. I mean, James Harden is one of the most prolific scorers this generation has to offer. And through the first two games of this series, he's averaging 18 points. He scored 16 points in the first game, scored 20 in game two. It's just not enough. And despite the fact that he's taking 15 shots... You've got to expect more from him if the 76ers are going to have any viable chance to upset the Heat and possibly get to the Eastern Conference Finals. Now, when it comes to Joel specifically, I think Joel is going to be wearing that mask. He's worn the mask before. Um, so he doesn't have any issues with his eye because he's been dealing with that fractured orbital bone that he suffered at the end of the Toronto series just a couple days ago. And I do think that just his presence alone if he is inserted back into the lineup for game three, I think it's going to pay dividends for the 76ers uh, in, in a big way. There's a very good chance that if Joel plays game three, and then you would probably assume that he played game four, that, my, that Miami could be in a situation where they go back to Miami for game five and that the series is tied two two just because Joel's presence is that pivotal for Philadelphia moving forward. I mean, for God's sakes, Joel is at the top of the MVP discussion this year basically averaging 30 points a game. And I think it pretty much goes without saying that you look at some of these point totals that Philly's put up in the first two games, you put Joel in here, there's a chance that Philly could put up 120, 125 points against Miami. And in game two, specifically, I mean, Miami scored 119 points. You put Joel in there, the 76ers could potentially score 125 points and you know the series could be tied. So like that's really kind of the difference maker moving forward here. I think when it's all said and done, I don't know if it was going to be able to dig themselves out of the hole uh, that they're currently in. And that's despite the fact that Joel could come back in this series. I really think that looking back at these first two games, they would have had to split one of these games in Miami to have any sort of chance to win the series. I mean, I'm not going to say that it's over and that, you know, Philly should pat their bags and, you know, head straight to Cancun for the Cancun invitational. But at this point, uh, they're, they're, a pretty dire situation. And I think the only way they get back into the series is if they win both games in Philly and Joel is going to have to pop off. So hopefully that's the best case scenario for Philly that they tie the series so that when they go to, when they go to game five back in Miami, that anybody's serious at that point, but it's going to be tough for Philly to win both of these games. Cause I, I could definitely see them winning game three, but I could definitely see Miami getting it back in game four. And then, I mean, if Miami wins any one of these games in Philly, it essentially ends this series uh, despite if Joel's back or not. So it's really pivotal that Philly get Joel back immediately because if they don't, you could pretty much just wrap this series up in five. Because Miami, just as a team, Miami is just a unit from top to bottom. And I don't see Philly making it a competitive effort if Joel's not in the line. So Philly's in a lot of trouble. But if they get Joel back, it'll definitely help them. That's just how I see it.
1: Hey, you're not an MVP candidate for nothing. You know, you don't go out there and average 30 points per game and win the scoring title for nothing. Um, You know, you're not regarded as the best big man in all of basketball for nothing. So your impact is definitely missed when you're not on the floor. Um, Someone that has a defensive presence to block shots and alter shots like Joel Embiid is going to be missed no matter what. Uh, So, you know, you've got to look at it from kind of every perspective here. If he's on the floor, that makes Bam out of bio work more. That makes PJ Tucker work more. That puts their bigs into foul trouble. That puts, uh, depending on the mismatches, that could put some of their 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 guards in foul trouble. And quite honestly, Joel Embiid just overall lifts the offensive and defensive capabilities of the Philadelphia Philadelphia Seventy Sixers because of what he can bring to the floor with his skill set. So, um, like I said, even an injured Joel Embiid is going to immediately make this team that much better. But again, depending on what his condition is or what his you know status is for game three that is still yet to be determined but this series looks to be wrapping up pretty soon if
0: this continues on the trajectory that it's already on it just depends on how big of an impact joel brings if he comes back for game three i mean they're pretty optimistic that he'll return for game three it's just i'm of the mindset if philly loses one of these games it's over yeah and, and that's you know it's absolutely pivotal that that Philly win both of these games at home and, and hopefully Joel is, you know, playing up the snuff and, you know, could drop 25, 30 points, you know, granted he's missed the first two games of the series. And I know he's dealing with that, that orbital bone issue. He's still recovering from a concussion, but you know, Joel can only do so much if they, if they get production from Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris. And if James just chips in for like a 20 piece, I mean, that, that could be enough to get them over the hump in game three. And then when it really comes to Game Four, you know they're gonna have to be on their A game because I know Miami's gonna make adjustments if Philly wins Game Three. You know, and I will say this, you know, when I look at both teams from top to bottom, Miami looks like they just have a better unit. I mean, their bench in Game Two alone, I think we were going over the numbers. I think Miami's bench outscored Philly's bench like fifty to eighteen in Game Two. Like it was literally a night and day difference. I mean, you had Victor Oladipo drop 19, you had Tyler Hero drop 18, and then they got some sporadic points from some other role players. They Dwayne Dedmon dropped like a nice little six spot in the limited time that he got. But you know, you look at Philly's bench. I mean, it's pretty thin at this point. So a lot of their a lot of their production is going to come from their starters. And with Joel Lau, I mean, it really makes them a one dimensional team. I mean, they've given a, a decent fight against Miami. So far, but really Joel is the difference maker. And you know, until that gets sorted out, you know, when it comes to his injury status, you know, Philly's really looking in trouble. I, I thought that James would be a more impactful player in this series for them until Joel got back, but he's really been subpar to say the least. I mean, averaging 18 points a game with the amount of money that he's getting paid, and essentially the the title of him being like a prolific scorer in the NBA based on what he's done in the past he's just not performing well in the playoffs and that's kind of been his MO really the last 5 6 years i mean that was his thing in houston where he came up small numerous amounts of times uh during his tenure there you could even make the point that during the playoff runs that oklahoma had uh with the thunder he was essentially a no show so i guess it's just kind of consistent based on what james has done in the past and unfortunately that just seems to be the case here Kevin, yeah, I think you were making a point earlier that um James is kind of similar to like Clayton Kershaw, where they just don't perform well in the playoffs, and that I agree with you hundred percent on that one. And I mean, I guess to transition into our next segment, I mean, we're gonna talk about James Harden and just his ineffectiveness uh as a whole when it comes to this playoff series against Miami. I mean, it's apparent. I mean, only averaging 18 points a game. He's definitely leaving Philly in a situation where, let's face it, they got into a, a scrap. Um, I wouldn't say a scrap, but a verbal um, disagreement between James Harden and Tyrese Maxey in Game One, and I think it. Could, I think it kind of scores the undertone of James's presence. You um, I don't know if it's like a point of division within the team, but you could definitely tell that I think the Seventy Sixers are expecting a little bit more from what they're getting from James Harden at this current moment in time. And just James is just not producing at the clip that I think that they're expecting. And that's really going to be, that's going to be the point of emphasis that I'm going to bring up here. Is there something you want to say?
1: I, I was just going to say, it's funny how, <clears throat> excuse me again, Um, you know, we're getting to this point now in the playoffs and this is where James is supposed to show his money's worth. This is where yeah. James is, is supposed to kind of prove his, I'm a top 10 player in this league. I want all this money and I want to be forcing my way out of specific teams, but then play like dog shit in the postseason. It just makes me
0: laugh. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to kind of, you know, phrase some sort of question to you with James Harden struggling mightily in this series against the Miami heat, is there any sort of way that you could see him turning it around in games three and four? I'm going
1: to be blunt. I'm going to say no. Hot take or not. Aggressive or not. Bias or not. I don't care. It's I have enough shown here. I get it. You know, you didn't have to play that much hard. That much hard. You, you see what I mean, guys? I'm all fucked up. Um, James Harden didn't have to give it everything he had because he had Joel Embiid to bail him out. He didn't have to rely upon his shot selection. He didn't have to rely on his ability to create space, facilitate the basketball, get to the free throw line. He just... Kind of cruised. He kind of did what he needed to do. Hit a couple of shots here. Had a couple of turnovers. Nothing of major eye-opening performance. But Joel's not here. You're the next guy up. You're supposed to be the superstar. Everybody in Philadelphia praised you within the first two weeks of being in Philly for this reason. You're in another big market. You represent another big city, and you logged in 41 minutes, and all you can give me was 20 points. Seven of those are from the free throw line, buddy. So that's 13 points, realistically. Six of 15, one of five from three, a negative 10 in the plus-minus field, three turnovers. You're getting outscored by Tyrese Maxey. You're getting outscored by Tobias Harris, who, once again, I am going to die on this hill and say if he is given the proper attention and shot selection, he will provide a spark on the offensive end. I mean, hell, he even gave you four steals today. That's more than James has probably had in his whole career in a game. So I'm literally over the fact that everybody said James puts you you guys in a position to win. James is a guy that can lead this team. James is a guy that can run alongside Joel Embiid. And this little issue with Tyrese Maxi goes and shows me a lot because I get it. If you haven't seen the clip, you're not going to know what we're talking about. But there's an instance in a timeout to where James is on the bench and Tyrese is coming to sit on the bench Tyrese sits away from James, James moves, Tyrese goes and sits away from him again, James follows him, sits next to him, Tyrese leaves again. He wants nothing to do with him. Granted, that could just be a, a, an exchange of word on the court, somebody's upset at what somebody said, or quite frankly, it could just be that James Harden is ruining another team. James Harden goes and, and that, that diva mentality, that that narrative that follows him and supersedes him is just embarrassing. And we lost by 20 points. Good job, Dallas. Way to fucking piss me off 10 times more than I've already been all day. But it's okay. I already predicted us losing five, so I don't really give a shit. Um, James Harden is a fraud. James Harden is a sham. And to me, James Harden is a bum. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say it. He's not washed. He can still play basketball. We all know that if he wanted to put up 25, 30 shots, he can do it and he can go and drop 35, 40 points. We understand that he can do that. Granted, I know that's a lot of shots to go and put up that many points, but I'm just saying, we all know that if James wanted to take over and take the shots away from people, that he can. I just think the way he carries himself, the way he performs in the postseason, and kind of how he carries himself within his teammates, the locker room, and off the court, he's a joke. I don't care how offensive it comes off. I'm not saying anything that I don't truly believe, and I'm not saying anything that other commentators and analysts haven't said. He's more worried about his external life than his dedication to the game. James Harden, He's not playing well in the postseason like he never does. And James Harden's going to look at this and say, well, you know what? Can't say it was me. I gave you 20. I gave you nine assists. I showed up. I was at practice. Joel didn't show up. Joel wasn't here. He wasn't giving it everything he had. It's because he's injured. You know what I'm saying? Like, the narrative is still going to follow you because you're still the next guy up to be that superstar. You were the one saying that you were the best one on the team. so." I don't know, man. I've been beating this drum for a while, starting to make me laugh, starting to make me a little bit giddy. Granted, I know it's at the expense of Joel Embiid's health because he's just kind of been injury-prone the last couple of postseasons, but when you have somebody of the magnitude that is James Harden and you fail to perform, there's no excuse for me. I don't care if Joel's there or not. I'm not saying you got to win, but you got to play a shit ton better than that.
0: I think the interesting part with, with James Harden and this whole equation is in this series specifically, I mean, James Harden is getting outperformed by Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey. And, you know, I understand that Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris, they've had longer tenures than James Harden has. James Harden has only been here in Philly for a couple of months at this point. But you would think somebody of James Harden's stature would be playing better basketball than what he's been displaying in this playoff series. And, and let's face it, I mean, 18 points per game in the first two games of the series, it's just not going to cut it. I've always looked at James Harden as one of the most prolific scorers really that this generation has to offer. And look, there's been this metric that I've always kind of used in football. There's a metric of like, there are players that play extremely well during the regular season, yet they don't really perform well in the playoffs. Um, Really, like one guy that kind of stood out to me in that regard in football was Phillip Rivers. Great football player during a regular season, but when it got to the postseason, he just wasn't able to get it done. That's just one specific player from the NFL. And James is kind of similar in that aspect because, you know, James, at one point when he was playing with Houston, I think the guy averaged like over 35 points a game, if not like 36 points a game. And James has been on incredible stretches where he's put up, you know, 30, 40 point performances. Like it's a walk in the park, but ever since he's got to Philly after this trade with Brooklyn, he's been subpar. There have been multiple games where I've seen James Harden just shoot ineffectively for multiple stretches. And, and really in this series in particular, Kevin, it's like you mentioned, he was six to 15 in game two. And you take away the free throws that he knocked down, which was seven. He would have scored 13 points. And You know, for somebody getting paid the amount of money that they're getting and essentially with Joel out until probably game three, you would expect that James Harden would kind of essentially, you know, take all that pressure on his back and try to get Philly a game on the road in Miami. Well, that didn't happen because in game two, Tyrese Maxey dropped 34 points. Tyrese Maxey, I mean, I understand Tyrese Maxey is a solid basketball player. I mean, this kid can outright play. But James Harden has been in this league for over a decade. One of the best scores that the NBA has to has to offer. And he's barely cracking 20 points. And Tyrese Maxey is almost getting 35 points a game. You could look at Tobias Harris. I know Tobias Harris has kind of been the odd man out in Philly when they brought James in and really it was James, Joel, and Tyrese. Those That was pretty much the three-man trio. But I mean, Tobias... You know, say what you whatever you want about him. I mean, the guy's still producing at a decent clip, despite being the fourth option on this team, realistically. He dropped more points than James Harden in game two against Miami. And I just don't know how James is going to be able to turn this around. And I think it's really just because once Joel gets back into the lineup, Joel is going to be the dominant force on the offensive side of the ball. And I think it's going to revert back to what they've had really the last couple of months with James in the lineup. It's mostly going to be Joel, Tyrese, and James is pretty much going to play third fiddle. And Tobias is going to slide back into that fourth spot. And I, I just don't really see James getting elevated in Philly's office to the point where he becomes the second option as far as a scoring option goes. Because I, th- I think Tyrese Maxey is just playing too well. I mean, Joel averaged 30 points a game this year. is an MVP candidate. Could possibly win the MVP when it's all said and done. And if you're getting outplayed by Tyrese Maxey, who has been on Philly for a couple years now, but has really kind of exploded on the scene this year specifically, I, I don't know how you could find yourself in a situation where you get elevated higher than him. Because Tyrese is playing great basketball. He's taking advantage of his opportunity, and he's making the most of it. And I think moving forward, if any sort of impact comes with Philly getting back into the series, it's going to be Joel. It will not be James Harden. I just haven't seen enough from James Harden to tell me that he's going to be the primary force that gets Philly back into the series. It will be Joel if that happens. And honestly, it could even be Tyrese over James. You know, James is really kind of sitting in that third spot right now. And I don't see that changing. And, you know, I I know Kev is uh, very has a lot of disdain uh, for James Harden just because... You know, James has really kind of uh, loafed it here and there, especially that last year that he was in Houston. You know, when I look at James as a basketball player, great basketball player, but you know, has an ego the size of Texas. I mean, it's it's massive. I mean, there are points in time where I think that he's more focused on what's going out, on what's going on outside of basketball than what he's, you know, displaying on the court. I mean, there's basically like a whole. Reddit page or but there's basically like, I mean, you want to talk about Twitter threads of him just dedicating so much time to the club where no matter where he goes. I just don't know if James really places basketball at the top of his priorities like he should. I think there's there are other influences in his life that seem to be taking up a lo- a large portion of his time. And I think basketball is kind of taking uh, a hit as far as what he's been able to display on the court. I mean, there have been some people that have said that even James, War- James Harden is washed at this point. I'm not going to go that far. But if James continues on this trajectory, you know, James is going to be just an average player within the next couple of years. You know, I, there's a chance that he could turn this around. I'm not saying like this is the end of James Harden, but he's got to get it together. And, it, you know, if he gets it started right now, great. But... I just don't think it's going to be him. I think it's either going to be Joel or Tyrese Maxey moving forward. If it comes to the 76ers being a viable team, it will not be James. And that just seems to be the trajectory that James is on. You know, he could definitely course correct it. He could definitely fix it. But right now it's not looking good for him. And it just kind of leaves Philly in a bind because Philly expected a lot more than what they're getting. And that's unfortunate for Philly. Because Philly is a really good team. If, um, if all their pieces are really working well together. But with James, it's it's not, and it's going to cost them in the end. That's just how I see it.
1: Hey, I know we just talked about James, and I know that people are going to bash me for it, and that's fine. I'm here for it. I welcome all challenges. But it's not all James's fault because it's still a team sport. Danny Green, 1 of 10, 3 points. DeAndre Jordan, not an offensive kind of person, but he was only able to give 6. As Kyle alluded to, the bench was only able to give 18-19 points. Not a good formula. They need Joel really bad, but I'm not going to sit here and harp on it. My bias for James Harden has shown quite enough in this segment.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, granted, I mean, you're never going to pass up an opportunity to slander James. I, I know that's just kind of your that's just kind of your thing. But I mean, overall, I mean, you could definitely make a point of criticism when it comes to James's series. And you would even say his tenure in Philly so far to a larger extent. He's just, he just hasn't played up to snuff. And that's despite the fact that Joel is going out there and like, basically killing himself just to try to keep Philly viable. Now, granted, Tyrese Maxey has has stepped up admirably. Uh, Tobias will, will chip in here and there. But if Philly has any sort of shot to, to get back into this series, it, it's going to largely be predicated around Joel and Tyrese. And like you mentioned a better bench production because their bench has been anemic to say the least. I mean, I mean, you're talking about like a 32 point uh, discrepancy between what Miami put on the court as far as their bench was and what Philly put out. So yeah, Philly's in a bind here. They got some issues to work through. That's a, that's what Doc Rivers is going to have to find out. So we'll see how it goes. But with that said, we are going to transition to the Golden State-Memphis Grizzly series, which currently stands at 1-1 apiece. In Game 2, I think it's safe to say that John Morant had one of the games of his life, dropped 47 points in a classic performance. I mean, if you look specifically at that Game 2 performance, it definitely keeps Memphis uh, in the fold for the series just because Golden State was probably the favorite to win this series, but Memphis is really giving Golden State a uh, sizable push, and they are definitely going to be a competitive force against Golden State for the rest of the series as it transitions back to San Francisco for Game 3. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, when John Morant dropped 47 points in Game 2 against the Warriors, first off, just what was your take about that performance, and what do you think it could propel Memphis when the series transitions to San Francisco for Game 3?
1: Dude, that's a man on a mission. That's a man amongst boys. That's a guy that's just straight hooping, man. Like, that is is an individual that is willing to carry his team despite the narrative, despite how the last series went, despite how game one went, whether that was a one-point win or a 30-point win in terms of, you know, in favor of Golden State. I'm looking at this and I'm saying, Ja Morant has everything he needs to go about bringing this team to a Western Conference Finals. I'm not saying Golden State's going to lose the series. I'm also not stating that by any means the series is over. What I'm saying is he's willing to give everything he has. He didn't shoot well behind the arc. Um, Well, not really, not necessarily. He shot over 40%. It was 5 of 12. He's not necessarily known for being a shooter. But when you go out there and you log 47 points, 8 assists, and 8 boards, at 23 years old, that is just absolutely insane. I think, Kyle, there was a stat that something along the lines of no, uh, only two other players at age 23 or younger were able to drop points per game like this in the playoffs or 40-point games. And I believe that was LeBron James and Kobe Bryant, which is quite the illustrious company to be a part of in, in, in postseason statistics in NBA history. But John Moran is just a guy on another level, man. He's He wants it like he's a guy that's dedicated like his swag to it his 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 drive his his absolute intensity on the court sure he dances a little bit sure he celebrates a little funny but he carries and uplifts his team with that kind of um with that kind of emotion and it shows man a lot of players love playing behind him a lot of players play absolutely incredible basketball whenever it is that he strives and he does well like most teams with a good point guard but There's just something about John Morant that you got to love, man, whether it's his charisma, whether it's how he soars and flies through the air, or whether, quite frankly, it's just his overall basketball ability. The man can straight out play. 47 points is an example of it in a win to kind of seal, you know, at least you guys were able to keep one game at home. And then you go and you look at the rest of this team, and this was just a tough, tough, tough fought game. Uh... Dylan Brooks was ejected early on with a flagrant two foul on Gary Payton the second, and he ended up breaking his elbow. So MRI and details are soon to follow with that. You know, prayers up for GP two. Um, low key, high key. Actually, a dirty play by Brooks. So I'll kind of leave that there. But next man up kind of always goes there. You know, Jaron Jackson Jr. He had twelve. Um, you know, you had uh, Clark had ten. You had Williams with fourteen. There are just a number of players that were able to kind of step up and contribute to Joss 47. And then you go and you look at the Golden State side and you say, well, they were shooting 18% from three. That is absolutely horrible. They were 7 of 38. They they could not get a single shot to fall. Andrew Wiggins had a poster, but outside of that, a very ill-efficient night. Steph Curry, he shot under 50%. He was 11 of 25. He was at 27 points. Um, Clay Thompson logs 41 minutes, goes 5 of 19, 2 of 12 from the 3-point line. 12 points. Unacceptable. Jordan Poole goes and gives 20 off the bench, but he can only do so much when the rest of his team isn't able to help. So overall, I think this series could potentially go the distance of 7 games. I am absolutely ecstatic to see where this ends up. But in terms of John Morant, boy... Somebody better, yeah, all yeah, better start double, triple teaming him the second he crosses half court because he's just a man, an animal, bro. He cannot be guarded, and it's just, it's, it's a scary sight to see if you're a Golden State fan for sure.
0: I think it's kind of funny when I, when I look at John Morant because one of the comparisons that I get with him is he almost kind of reminds me of Derrick Rose to an extent with just his athleticism and his ability to just find a way to get to the rim. And it really kind of showed in that fourth quarter against Golden State in game two. Because there was a point in time when this game was really close. It was really kind of back and forth between Golden State and Memphis in the fourth quarter. But really, John Moran took it upon himself to be the focal piece for the Grizzlies to get them that win. I think, if memory serves me correct, he scored over 20 points in the fourth quarter um, by himself for Memphis. But he scored the last 15 points that Memphis put on the scoreboard. Uh, to end the game. And a lot of these plays, I mean, he, he just drove towards the basket and was able to just contort his body to find a little bit of space and be able to lay it up. And a lot of times, you know, they would put different guys defensively on John Morant. They would put Clay Thompson on him. They'd put him, they put Jordan Poole on him. It put Andrew Wiggins on him. I mean, they were golden state was actually doing a pretty good job of showing different defensive schemes against John Morant. And it really just didn't matter. John was able to expose it. I mean, John Morant was knocking down three point shots uh, against Andrew Wiggins. I mean, there was one play in particular against Jordan Poole where John just had a, it was like a spin cycle type play where he had Jordan Poole literally looking lost. I'm sure somebody has to give Jordan Poole a map because he's probably still lost after that spin cycle that John put him in. And even Clay Thompson. Clay got matched up against him and Jaw just beat Clay with his speed and was able to get to the rim fairly easily. And that's the thing, is that, granted, I wouldn't say that Jaw's shooting ability is his strong suit. His strong suit is definitely driving to the rim and just, you know, either dunking the ball or just getting a nice, easy layup or sometimes even a contested layup. Uh, I think that's where his game really thrives. And I think, you know, as time progresses, uh, his jump shot will improve. His three-point shooting will improve over time. But I think when it comes to this series specifically, I, I'm not as sold on this series going seven games like Kevin had mentioned. I do think that Golden State is still the better team. I still believe that Golden State's going to get to the Western Conference Finals over the Grizzlies. But, Kev, I, I want to kind of propose this to you because this is kind of how I see something uh, playing out with this series in particular. This series reminds me of lot, a lot of when the Lakers were – on their title run from 2009 to 2010, where they went back to back championships. That was when Kobe got his fourth and fifth ring in the first round of the playoffs in that 2010 title season. They went up against a young Oklahoma city team. And this was back when the, uh, the Thunder had Kevin Durant, James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And they were the young kids on the block trying to prove something. And they, they pushed the Lakers in a pretty competitive way. Even though that the Thunder lost that series, I believe they lost that series in six games. They gave the Lakers a lot to work with and pretty much pushed them as far as you could really think a number one seed could go when they went up against the the Thunder. And this is what this Memphis team reminds me of. Granted, the Thunder were probably a better shooting team when they went up against the Lakers in the early 2010s. But this team when it comes to Memphis, they're young, they're hungry and they're gritty. It's the grit factor that really is the difference maker for me with Memphis compared to Oklahoma city when they had KD, Russell and James, because really no matter what happens, it doesn't matter if the Grizzlies are down by 15, 20 points or if it's like a five point deficit, like they will find ways to get back into the game and take the lead extremely quickly. And I think when it comes to golden state in this, this scenario, I think they realize that. I think they're fully aware of that going into games three and four, uh, back in San Francisco, and I do think that Golden State's going to have the edge over them. But John Morant is really that focal piece for Memphis to keep them viable. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if Memphis actually splits a game against Golden State in either games three or you know games game three or four. Excuse me. So, all in all. I mean, this is going to be a great series no matter how it ends. I I mean, I still have Golden State favored to win this one just because I think their experience and their veteran presence is going to be able to overpower the youth that Memphis presents. But when it comes to John Morant specifically, I mean, this guy's a stud. This guy's a superstar in the making if he isn't one already. And within a very short time frame here, I mean, John Morant could really be one of the faces of the NBA within a relatively short period of time because, I mean, when you put up 47 points against a team like Golden State in the second round of the playoffs and you do it in a win in convincing fashion, that's that's exciting to watch. I mean, it was it was a stellar performance from Jaw overall in Game 2, but they're going to need those types of performances to keep them in it in this series. I'm not saying that he's going to drop 47 points in Games 3 or 4 moving forward, but if, you, if he could drop a 30 piece or maybe a 35 piece that gives Memphis a very good shot to win one of these games in San Francisco. But I still think th- that the odds are stacked against them just because I think Golden State is a bet, but it's going to be very interesting to see how the series play out. And it's really because of what Jaws doing for Memphis. It's special. And I imagine it's going to continue into the future. That's just how I see it. I mean, obviously at the end of the day, You know that this series is about to go
1: crazy. You know what I'm saying. Regardless of what aspect you're looking at it, regardless of who you're cheering for, um, you got the veteran Warriors, obviously trying to chase and prove everybody wrong and said their championship window had closed. And you got the up and coming Memphis Grizzlies, who you know soar and fly really high and play really really tough defense. And of course, just like Kyle said, are just an overall gritty team. But, dude. I don't necessarily know if I can make the comparison to the OKC team just because you got a player like KD at that age coming off of, I think, uh, uh, multiple scoring titles and whatnot. I get the comparison of just having an electrifying player with a supporting cast. I get that. But Ja just isn't a guy that can take over a game like that. And I know that he did last night, but we're making a comparison overall because you're making a comparison team-wise. KD to Jaw because that is exactly essentially what it is because Jaw is the KD of this team.
0: It, I, I, I just kind, to kind, me I kind I can't of, see that. This is the point that I was really trying to hone in on. I'm talking about like these are the new kids on the block, right? And w- when you look at Golden State, a Golden State's been around for basically what eight years it's like a championship contending team.
1: Six seven years, yeah
0: because I they, think they started there. They got their first chip in 2015. Yeah, so I mean it's basically almost, you know, 7-8 years at this point. So I mean, they're they're fully established. And right. the reason why I made the, the the comparison with the Lakers is because you know, the Lakers were kind of that that championship contending team in the late 2000s winning those back-to-back championships. Uh, winning those back-to-back championships, excuse me. And when OKC came onto the scene really in 2010, the reason why i mentioned them specifically that year is because the lakers played them early on in that playoff run before they beat boston in um to get kobe his fifth ring okc gave the lakers a hell of a run and really kind of pushed them to the edge in that first round series and the reason why that i i bring that up in comparison with what's going on with the golden state in the memphis series Is that Golden State is that same type of established team that's won championships in the past that still has, you know, amazing players like Steph Curry, uh, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson. Yet the Grizzlies are coming into a situation where they're young, they're hungry, they're still like there's raw talent on that team. It's just they don't have the playoff experience yet to be able to get themselves over a hump or get themselves over the hump against a team like Golden State, it, that was kind of the point that I was mostly focusing on. It was more of this team is on the rise. They're young. They're hungry. They're not scared of anybody. They're going to give championship contending teams a run for their money. It's just they're just a little too young. It's I don't think it's going to happen this year to the point where they actually jump Golden State to get to a Western Conference Finals. But that was kind of the point that I was making. It wasn't really like a, a, a jaw point specifically, like comparing him to what KD was in 2010. It's really just they're they're just a great young team. It's just Golden State has that championship pedigree. And that's that's gonna be the decisive factor in how I see this series playing out. That's why I'm not sold on the idea as you are about this series going to seven games. I think it's gonna go six. Golden State will win it in six, but Like I said, they're going to give, I mean, the Grizzlies are going to give Golden State everything that they have. And that was really the point that I was was trying to make. But I brought that up. Yeah, no, I got you. So, but I mean, it's going to be, It's. I mean, Kev, I mean, we're only two games in this series. I mean, it's been exciting from beginning to, you know, beginning to up to this point. So, and I have no, I have no other uh, reason to believe it's going to change anytime soon. Like, it's going to be a fantastic series from beginning to end. But with that said, we're going to transition to another series that is tied 1-1 apiece. And that will be over in the Eastern Conference with the Milwaukee Bucks and the Boston Celtics. So in Game 2, the Celtics had a dominating performance against the Bucks. They won that game by 23 points to even that series at 1-1 apiece. The series does transition back to Milwaukee for Games 3 and 4. And this is going to be... Interesting game three, just because in game one, Milwaukee really kind of gave it to Boston on the defensive side of the ball just because Boston couldn't even break 90 points as a team. In game one, they just struggled from the field. Really, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, they couldn't get into any sort of rhythm. And then essentially the complete opposite happened in game two where Milwaukee kind of struggled as a unit to score. They couldn't break out of the 80s uh, by the end of the game. But overall, Boston just gave it to Milwaukee from beginning to end in Game 2. And it's going to be very interesting to see how this series plays out moving forward. But it's definitely going to be a compelling series with this series tied at 1-1 apiece. Now, Kevin, to get this one to you, with the Boston Celtics and the Milwaukee Bucks series transitioning back to Milwaukee for Game 3, who do you have winning and why?
1: I'm leaning towards Milwaukee because Milwaukee's going home. I'm leaning towards Milwaukee because they have another MVP candidate himself in Giannis Antetokounmpo. I'm leaning towards Milwaukee because they are the defending champions. They're going to make adjustments, and they're going to play 10 times more aggressive in that game three against Boston. Jason goes for 29. Jalen goes for 30. 59 between the two of them. They go 11 of 20 from behind the arc. It's over 50% from the three-point line combined. Um, And then Giannis has another inefficient night. Drew Holiday has another inefficient night. 7-20 uh, for Drew. 11-27 for for Giannis. Granted, Giannis got his 28, his 9 rebounds and 7 assists. You know, Drew Holiday had his few couple steals, and then he had his 7 assists. But you, you, you got to be able to play at a more efficient clip, man. I mean, as a team, they went 3 of 18 from the 3-point line. That is 16% from the free throw line. They were 15 of 23, 65%. They also turned the ball over 16 times. So the roles look to be a little bit on the reverse side of things because this time Boston, excuse me, was able to clean it up. Boston only had 11 turnovers. Boston shot 46% from three. Boston shot 86% from the free throw line. And as a team, they shot 47% from the field. They also had contributing factors from Grant Williams. They also had contributing factors from Robert Williams and Al Horford. And they were able to kind of just keep the lead going. And where this took a turn, where you thought Milwaukee was going to be able to come back, was going to be in the third quarter. Milwaukee goes into 26. uh, They score 26 in the third. Boston scores 18. They cut the lead. And then Jalen Brown takes over in the fourth quarter. It's pretty much just how it went, man. They, they kind of traded buckets back and forth, and Jalen was able to just say, you know what? Put the team on my back. This is what I'm here for. This is what I'm going to do. Jason can't do it all by himself. Here we go. I know he scored one more point than Jason, but what he, they're both able to bring to the floor now with Jason's surging defensive presence because he's gotten so much better this season at guarding one of the better defenders, or excuse me, one of the better offensive players on the other team. It's just really, really interesting to see the dynamic of how they went about defending Giannis. And they were able to get the ball out of his hands, and whenever he did have it, he kind of forced up a shot, and it was a shot that they were willing to live with. And that's exactly what Boston needed to do. They needed to make an adjustment. They needed to figure out what they needed to do, and they conquered. They won by over 20 points, and I think that uh, Milwaukee's going to have a bad taste in their mouth knowing that they're going home, knowing that they were embarrassed in that last game. And we all know that Giannis takes that personal and puts a chip on his shoulder and says, "Okay, y'all got me once. I'll be damned if I let it happen again." It's just the drive for me that 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 leads me to believe that Giannis Antetokounmpo is just not going to allow them to lose that next game. Can they? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if Boston's able to knock down shots efficiently, and you know Milwaukee shoots basically blindly from behind the arc. Um, anything's possible. But overall, I think. Uh, I think that they're going to make some adjustments. I think that Giannis is going to come out extra aggressive and try to get some of their bigs in foul trouble. But overall, great game two. Um, Incredible to see the series tied up. We both knew that this was going to go the distance, whether that be six or seven, and um, super excited for game three for sure.
0: Kevin, I mean, the way that I see this uh, game three playing out, um, I'm in agreement with you on this one. I do think that the Bucs will win game three. I think it's going to be a, a fairly competitive game. Um, much more competitive when it was in game two. And I think it's just simply because um, Milwaukee got embarrassed in-, in game two. There's no other way to say it. And I think that they're going to be able to get it back. And I think when we look at this game three that's going to take place on Saturday, I think the one thing we have to focus with Milwaukee is you know how they're going to win this game against Boston. Because the only way that I see Milwaukee winning this game and this series to a larger extent I don't think they're going to be able to outscore Boston just because when you look at Boston from just a youth perspective, I mean, Boston has so many great young players to work with who can knock down shots. Consistently. You could look at guys that typically knock down shots for Boston, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown. Um, you could look at Marcus smart. There, there are some big name players that can knock down shots consistently. And then some of the role players um, step up in big moments for them. You got to Look at guys like Al Horford, uh Robert Williams. You can even look at guys like Grant Williams. Like these guys when given opportunities to knock down shots, they can on a consistent basis. And that's what happened in game two. Really Milwaukee got off to a terrible start in game two. They were behind the eight ball pretty much the entire game and had to basically scraw, they basically had the scratch and claw to try to get back into that game. But Boston was just too much for them to handle. And I think one thing that Milwaukee's gonna have to focus on is just trying to limit and contain Jason and Jalen to a larger extent. Because when you look back at that game, too, from both of them, I mean, Jalen and Jason combined for damn near 60 points between the two of them. I mean, those two guys by themselves basically accounted for three quarters of what Milwaukee scored as a unit. So they're going to have to find a way to, to, you know, at least lock up. Jason and Jalen to a larger extent in Game 3 because what they had in the game plan in Game 2, it did not work out in any way, shape, or form. And that's just on the defensive side of the ball. So when it comes to the Bucks and the offensive side of the ball, the Bucks are very limited without Chris Middleton. And when I looked at Game 1 specifically, the biggest standout was Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday was the expeditor that got them that win in Game 1 in Boston. Granted, Giannis was still effective. He still scored 24 points, but Drew was the one that really kind of set the tempo and knocked down some big buckets at the end when Milwaukee needed it in game one. And they're definitely going to need another big performance from Drew if they want to win game three. And not only that, when I look at the rest of the roster for Milwaukee here, they're going to need Bobby Portis to continue to knock down shots consistently. They're going to need Grayson Allen and Pat Connaughton to knock down shots because... Granted, I know that Grayson Allen is probably one of the most hated players in the NBA just because of his antics and some of the shit that he did back at Duke when he was in college, but I have to give it up to the guy. When he is knocking down shots consistently, he is a difference maker for the Bucks bench. It actually makes it a viable bench, uh, not only just during the regular season, but it's making it a viable one during the playoffs as well. So if Grayson Allen can get into a shooting rhythm uh, going into game three, I think it serves Milwaukee in a tremendous way. And I think when it's all said and done, when you look at the factors of, I think that the, the Bucks are going to play better defense against Jason and Jalen. They're going to force Boston's role players to knock down shots. And I think when you combine it with the fact that I think Giannis is going to be an absolute monster. I wouldn't be surprised if Giannis drops 35 points in this game. I wouldn't be surprised if Bobby Portis and Drew Holiday have respective good games in their own right. And then if they get good production, from Grayson Allen. I think that's going to be the difference maker. I think that's what's going to push Milwaukee over the top. In this game against Boston. I think it's what's going to get them to the win. It'll be a close game. I don't think it's going to be like a blowout. In favor of Milwaukee. But I do see Milwaukee winning this one. By like 5 or 6 points. And putting this series 2-1 in favor of the Bucks When it's all said and done. But with that being the case. There's no doubt in my mind. That Boston could come right back in game 4 and tie this series at 2-2 apiece when the series transitions back to Game 5 in Boston. This is a really tough series to pick just because I think both teams are very evenly matched. It really just depends on whether or not Milwaukee's defense shows up or not because Milwaukee's defense, I think, is really the X factor and hope to God that they really put enough points on the board. But that's how I see Game 3 playing out, and I think the series is going to be a fun one. Uh, when it gets down to the end of it it's it's already a competitive series to begin with but i think we're in for a good ride here that's just how i see it
1: well just another matchup man another one that's going to be close another one that just they 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 line up well together personnel looks good together and then of course like you just like you said an overall just entertaining matchup as two teams in the playoffs looking to go to the eastern conference finals I was kind of hoping this would have been more of an Eastern Conference Finals matchup with a trip to the finals on the line, but I mean, hey, the fact that we got the matchup in general is just—it's good enough for me. So we'll just kind of have to play this out, and we're just gonna have to see what each superstar does. And you know, granted, Milwaukee's playing with their hands behind one hand tied behind their back without their second best player, but let's just find—let's just hope that for whatever reason, Drew Holiday is able to kind of carry suit and uh, pick up some of the slack because. Let's be honest, he has been shooting quite inefficiently over the first two games of the season, or should I say series. Things are going to have to change in order for them to kind of go out there and uh, and capitalize and hope to uh, you know, take the next two at home. But overall, like I said, if
0: this were to go to 7, I ain't going to be mad. No, I it's going to be a gritty really kind of a battle series. Really these teams are going to battle it out. Um just because Milwaukee's grit, I can't underestimate That's what honestly won them a championship last year. It was really just their grit as a unit from top to bottom. Because they're not really a flashy team. You know, Giannis can put up a flash highlight here and there. But by and large, their success comes from playing defense and scoring just enough points to get by. But it works in the playoffs. It worked for them last year, and it could serve them well. uh, Not only in this series, but if they play their cards right, it could serve them well in the Eastern Conference Finals as well if they end up getting there. But with that said... Uh, We're going to talk about one more NBA topic. This is going to be in reference to somebody that has already been eliminated from the playoffs, and that is one Donovan Mitchell. So Donovan Mitchell plays with the Utah Jazz. The Jazz were eliminated by the Dallas Mavericks in the first round of the playoffs. Only damn good news we have. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, The Jazz lost that series uh, in six games. Uh, Despite the fact that the Jazz were eliminated, uh, Donovan Mitchell still remains one of the most dynamic players that Utah has on the roster, and honestly, one of the most dynamic players in the NBA at this current moment in time. But where we're going to take this story next is whether or not that Donovan Mitchell is going to stay with the Utah Jazz in the foreseeable future. There's been some rumors. It's been reported that Donovan Mitchell could be on the way out, and there's been one instance in particular where Rudy Gobert is essentially forcing the front office of Utah, they're force he's forcing their hand to basically pick between either Gobert himself or Donovan Mitchell moving forward. Granted, that was reported. I don't really have any sources to say it, like it was confirmed or anything like that. But essentially, Gobert is essentially drawing his sand, is drawing his line in the sand and going to make it a situation between either Gobert or Mitchell moving forward. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, do you think that Donovan Mitchell is going to be in a Utah Jazz jersey next season?
1: Absolutely not. Listen, the Jazz have been relevant In the regular season, obviously last year having the best record in the NBA and then seasons before that, you know, making the playoffs, whether that be the sixth or the fifth seed. And of course, since Donovan Mitchell's been on this team, they've been relevant again. They've been um, kind of making their name, I guess, renowned to the league, I guess, kind of putting themselves back on the map. We all know that Utah is not the greatest market in the world for free agents, but then they go and get lucky and they draft, you know, Donovan Mitchell, a guy that's dynamic in his ability to shoot. Get to the basket, has athleticism, be able to finish in between defenders, right, left hand. I mean, we already know Donovan Mitchell is probably one of the better up-and-coming stars in this league, and they haven't been able to capitalize on the potential that they've brought to the table. They go and they give Mike Conley a big extension. They go and they give Rudy Gobert an extension. They obviously go and they sign Jordan Clarkson to an extension. Uh, Bogdanovich and just a bunch of players but it just seems like it's never enough in the postseason it just seems like for whatever reason Utah just cannot seal the deal and get out of either the first or second round and I know that what we're talking about here is is Donovan Mitchell going to stay but you have to remember that paints a picture of not being able to win on the team that you just signed a supermax contract with for the next four or five seasons you also have to remember That Utah, like I had stated just a few moments ago, isn't exactly the greatest market. So attracting a big-time free agent, the odds are slim to none. You also have to take into consideration Donovan Mitchell is probably more than fed up with Rudy Gobert's antics, and that conversation or that comment that was said by Rudy over the last couple of days probably didn't sit well with Donovan for him to be like, dude, aren't you the dick that coughed on the microphone when COVID first started? Like, aren't you that guy? Why are you making this about you? Donovan's a better player than you, hands down. I don't care if you've won five Defensive Player of the Year awards. You're not giving me the offensive output that Donovan is. You're not giving me the playmaking capabilities that Donovan is. I'm sorry. You can block all the shots you want. You can average 14, 15 boards a game. Donovan's averaging 24 to 25 points a season since he's gotten into the NBA. And until Rudy Gobert can match that or supersede that, I'm not going to sit here and say that this is an easy decision, but it is. Donovan Mitchell is a better player, hands down, in a multiple facet of ways, and I think that he brings a lot to the table. There's been so much speculation, <clears throat> excuse me, over the last couple of seasons about Donovan Mitchell returning home. He is a native New Yorker, grew up upstate. Uh, ironically enough, my high school played his high school, uh, Canterbury, and it, you know, there's just anyway. What I'm trying to get at is I'm not saying him coming to New York is going to make it any better because we all know that Kyle has a a, a great love and passion for New York Knicks fans. And uh, him coming home doesn't mean that that's going to do anything for them. Granted, the Eastern Conference has been proven to be a little easier to manage as opposed to the Western Conference, so he might not have first-round exits if the Knicks were to actually kind of put a good team around him. But overall, I don't necessarily know if that's just a good fit for him because it's another team and organization that is not doing well. It's another team that is not succeeding in its postseason endeavors. They're not in a rebuild mode, but they have a lot of shit going on, and I don't know if that shit is worth leaving Utah for because at least at the end of the day, you do know you have key role players that will defer to you because they know you're the number one option as opposed to Julius Randle, R.J. Barrett, and a couple of other players that, you know, obviously R.J. a little bit more than, than Julius – RJ knows that he's the future and Julius is just trying to stay relevant. But what I'm getting at is I think that Donovan for his career, for his benefit needs to leave. Now, whether he decides to go to Portland and be the you know second fiddle to Damian Lillard, if he decides to go to the Lakers, you know, it, there's a lot of different options and possibilities for me. I think it's in his best interest to get out of there, but it has to be to a good enough team to where they can actually make a run. And You know, if he goes back to the garden, congratulations. Another guy that ends up back home. But what's it going to do for your career? I'm never going to get off that hill. I'm never going to get off that mountain. Whether or not New York's able to give you another two or three-year extension on top of what you already have, is the money worth losing? You're mad right now because you're losing. You're frustrated because the team isn't able to put in a winning culture and get out of the first round. Are you willing to sacrifice all of that because you put on a Nick jersey and make 30-30? $30 30 to $35 million a season? I don't know. That's just kind of what I have to say. Uh, but I, I, I would like to see Donovan Mitchell somewhere else where I know that he can do better.
0: Kevin, how much you want to bet if he goes to New York that Knicks fans are going to instantly start claiming that the Knicks are going to the finals? Nick? How much you want to bet?
1: I don't it's... know about no finals. I don't care how much money Kev, people think Kev, they got in New York.
0: Kev, this is your city. You know them best. Like, <sighs> you know Knicks fans. Just... <clears throat> I got to know, like, would they instantly go to we're going to the finals if we get Donovan?
1: No, they know they're going back to the playoffs. They they know better than to be that dumb. Granted, I know for a fact that they were just being absolutely ridiculous after just one game of the regular season this year. Donovan doesn't give you the automatic finals appearance because, you know, you have to give up assets to get him. So whatever it is you think you have now, which isn't much, you're probably going to have to give up to get him because Utah's not letting him go for free.
0: Well, and that's the thing is, I'm not 100% sold on the idea that he is leaving. I think if it comes down to a situation where the front office has to pick on Rudy Gobert staying or Donovan Mitchell staying, I mean, that's an easy one. I would ship Rudy Gobert out instantaneously. As long as it's
1: not to fucking Dallas, he can go wherever he wants.
0: Guys do need a center.
1: I don't need that kind of center.
0: Dallas needs a center. I'm just saying. He can kick kick rocks,
1: kick rocks, go back to France. I don't give a shit.
0: But despite that, I mean, when it comes to Donovan Mitchell, I mean, I'm actually going to say the opposite here. I think he's actually going to stay with Utah. I think he'll be in a Utah Jersey next season. And here's why. If it really comes down to a situation where the front office has to pick between either Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell, they're going to stick with Donovan Mitchell just because of the dynamic athleticism that he brings to that team. And I think if you were to look at this from a front office perspective, would the team really take that big of a step back if Rudy Gobert was not on this team? It may take a slight step back, but not a sizable one compared to Donovan Mitchell potentially leaving. Because as far as I'm concerned, Donovan Mitchell is essentially the reason that keeps... Utah, a viable team in the Western Conference. Because when you look at the Western Conference from top to bottom, you've got Phoenix, who's the number one seed this year. You have Memphis, that's a team on the rise. They're young, they're hungry, and they're not scared of anybody. You've got Golden State, who is championship pedigree. I mean, these guys have been in multiple championships, and their championship window is wide open as far as I'm concerned. And then Utah is in the mix Kind of similar to what Dallas is. Even though that I think Dallas is kind of like on the precipice of possibly doing something pretty significant within the next year or two, Utah is kind of in like that four or five spot in the Western Conference. And if you were to take Donovan Mitchell out of that situation entirely, I don't even know that Utah would make the playoffs. Utah would struggle to make the playoffs. That's, just, that's despite the fact that they have some decent players um, outside of Donovan Mitchell. League. You could look at uh, Bogdanovich as a decent player. They still have Mike Conley, even though he's always injury prone. Uh, Jordan Clarkson is one of the best bench players in the NBA. He's always somebody that's vying for sixth man of the year because, I mean, the guy is just a walking bucket uh, off the bench. But, I mean, outside of that, Utah gets thin. And and Donovan is really the guy that really brings a lot of energy and excitement to that team. And I remember when I was watching the uh, the series between the Jazz and the Mavericks in the first round of the playoffs. The one thing that always kind of caught me with Donovan is whenever that team specifically, meaning the jazz here, whenever they got into a rhythm and Donovan was really hitting his shots, it almost got to a point where it, whatever sort of shot that he took, I didn't think that he was going to miss it. Like when he gets into a zone, he is one of the most electrifying players to watch in the NBA. And, It doesn't matter whether he's shooting behind the three-point line, hitting mid-range jump shots, or just driving into the lane. His game is just solid from top to bottom and is essentially the main reason why Utah has been a decent team not only in the Western Conference, but in the NBA for the last couple years. Now, could it get to a point where he just gets frustrated that the team just cannot get over the hump to where they can make a Western Conference Finals appearance or even, even better, making an NBA Finals appearance? That could definitely be a possibility. But a scenario could arise saying, look, where Donovan Mitchell points to the front office, it says, we need to get better role players or we need to get more depth uh, on our bench to make it just a more well-rounded roster. And that could be a point that he could make to the front office with Utah this offseason. Because I know he's definitely getting frustrated by these early exits in the playoffs. I mean, anybody would, especially a, a guy of this caliber. And I think Utah is more than willing uh, to make adjustments to make this roster better. So I'm not sold on the idea that the Jazz are going to move on from Donovan Mitchell just because that he's frustrated. I mean, I understand the frustration completely. But, I mean, Damian Lillard has been in a very similar situation out in Portland. And he's held steadfast despite whatever sort of rumors have popped up about him potentially getting traded. So, I mean, we'll see how this offseason plays out uh, in regards to Donovan Mitchell. Um, I think if I had to put on somebody getting moved this offseason, it would be Rudy Gobert first, not Donovan Mitchell, because I think Donovan Mitchell is just too valuable uh, for that franchise to give up. Unless they get an absolute massive haul in return for Donovan Mitchell, I don't see him getting moved this offseason. I think he sticks with Utah next season, but I do think that Utah is going to make a concerted effort to build a better roster around Donovan, because at this point, it would tend to Lead to that conclusion just because these first round exits or these early exits in the playoffs uh they're unacceptable as far as I'm concerned and I think the front office is fully aware of that and I think they're going to do everything that they can uh to try to make the situation better for Donovan in Utah and not to the point where they just ship him off because he's getting too frustrated but we'll see how the offseason plays out but I, I definitely see Donovan uh, coming back to the jazz next year
1: I mean obviously Rudy's the easier one to ship Obviously, uh, it's not that difficult of a decision, especially to the both of us, and we're not NBA GMs, but you have to look at it from a perspective to where Donovan is just genuinely not happy. Um, we've seen a lot of forced exits in the last couple of seasons, um, mainly by divas. I don't necessarily get the narrative or understanding that ja, that, ja, that Donovan is an NBA diva. Um, every man has his breaking point, so I wouldn't be surprised if this is kind of it, because let's be honest, they have spent money on players. They have given players extensions that deserve them. And at the same time, I think they've done as much as they can with this roster. They have shooters, interior paint presence. They were one of the league's, if not the league's, best offense this year statistically. How much more can you do? We've talked about this before on multiple episodes. Utah doesn't necessarily have a big market. I know that I say this, not biasly, but true at least Dallas is a major city. You know, granted, we haven't gotten any big-name free agents either in quite some time, but I'm just saying, people I feel like would be more inclined to play for the city of Dallas than they would be for Utah. I, You know, that's no slate to the state. and That's not saying that Utah's not cool or fun or, or a great place to live, but a lot of these NBA players, especially nowadays, are looking for the place to be, the it factor, something that sticks out, and... I think that those markets are L.A., New York. You know, sometimes Dallas. It really depends on who we're talking about. And I think that exactly. I think that's going to be the biggest factor is well, I can stay here in Utah. I can get all the money that I want. But is this team going to win? Not that Rudy is going to make a difference if playoff or not. But you get rid of Rudy Gobert to make your superstar happy. You lose your interior paint defense. You lose how your team alters shots. And I know you're not about to give a lot of money to Hassan Whiteside because, let's be honest, he's not what he once was back in Miami just a few years back. And him having a backup role was minimized in this series because Dallas went small. So, or should I say last series? Overall, I think Donovan's got to find his way out. I think it's just better suited for both teams. You know, Utah goes through its rebuild. Rudy can stay happy, and you know there's there's no more issue. And Donovan gets out of there because Donovan Mitchell is just one of my favorite players to watch. Uh, yeah, it, it just it's uh, to me it 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 seems a little bit more complicated than what we're both alluding to. But again, the the easier of the two moves would definitely be to move Rudy.
0: I mean, look, and, and this is something <clears> that <throat> I I think we have to kind of keep in mind here. I understand that you know players get frustrated with with this the situations that the teams that drafted them, you know, face. And there's no doubt that I know that the front office with Utah is definitely frustrated in the lack of playoff success that they've had with Donovan in the fold. And just because Donovan is frustrated, it doesn't mean that the front office doesn't share that sentiment. I believe they do in this instance. Because when you look at this team from top to bottom, Like this team could technically run it to a Western Conference Finals. Like, they have that type of depth to be able to do it. And just because Donovan is upset or frustrated with the lack of playoff success, it doesn't mean that with that out in the ether, that Utah's just going to willy-nilly just, all right, well, he's mad. We got to move him just because he's mad or he's frustrated just to get get him out of here. Like, That doesn't happen unless it gets to a point where the relationship is just burned, where it gets to a point where there's it's past the point of no return. Utah is not going to be, I would I would say there'd be a lot of hesitancy from Utah to just trade Donovan because oh he's mad about the lack of playoff successes. You know that's why I kind of made the point like I don't see Utah making a huge um. A huge push to move him unless they get like this massive trade haul back for him. I just don't see it. I mean, the only scenario where I could really see Donovan getting moved, and granted, I'm going to mention this. Like, there's going to be some bias with this. What if, like, the Lakers traded LeBron to Utah and they would get Donovan? I'm just saying hypothetically, it's not going to happen. I was just kind of like bringing up as a as a little bit of I a, a bias. I hypothetical. think LeBron would
1: rather go back to Cleveland.
0: It just, <clears throat> I think at this point, I just don't see a scenario. Um, even with all the the rumors circulating about his exit, I just don't think that he'll leave. I I don't think that he'll get traded either. I I don't think it'll be this off season. I think if something happens next year, where that t- Utah misses the playoffs entirely or they get bounced in the first round again, then I could see a scenario where he gets moved. I think this offseason, though, I think despite whatever uh, gets brought up in rumors, despite how frustrated he may be, I think he will stick around um, for one more year to kind of see what the front office does to try to adjust the roster. But if it doesn't work out next year, then I could I, I could see a real possibility. But I, I think it will be... Um, what the result is based off of next year, not what just happened. That's kind of how I see playing. But with that said, we're going to transition to our last topic of the episode and we're going to kick it to the NFL for this one. And we're going to talk a little bit about Ryan Tannehill and the current, I guess you would kind of call it a controversy with Malik Willis. So Malik Willis was one of the quarterbacks drafted by the Tennessee Titans in this past draft that took place. Uh, this last weekend. And Malik Willis was essentially slated as a top, basically a top prospect in the quarterback position. I mean, some analysts had him potentially going in the first round of the NFL draft. He slid all the way to the third round and looking back at a lot of the, uh, the draft results, a lot of analysts put the Titans at the top of the pecking order, as far as this year's draft goes. And in large part, it was being able to draft Malik Willis as a third round pick instead of a top. One or a top two uh, round pick. And that kind of brings us to the situation between Malik Willis and Ryan Tannehill. Uh, Ryan Tannehill had a press conference the other day where he essentially said it's not really his job to prep Malik Willis to be a quarterback in the NFL, to not really mentor him in any way, shape, or form. And let's just say that Tannehill has come under fire for his comments based on that stance. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, what do you make of Ryan Tannehill's comments in regards to Malik Willis?
1: That shows fear, Kyle. That 100% puts Ryan Tannehill in a place where he is uncomfortable. It, it It shows his inability to really show compassion for his teammates. He knows that if he messes up, he's probably done. I don't know about in the league, but as a starter, he struggled last season mightily. <clears throat> and when Derrick Henry went out, obviously all pressure was on his shoulders. Now Tennessee goes and drafts a rookie quarterback in the third round rather than maybe another receiver or a couple more defensive players to improve their already struggling defense. <laughs> and it just it to me, bro, it just it really shows a lot of weakness, man. His immediate reaction, how he worded it. Again, it's all based off of interpretation of how you perceive things, but to me knowing that he had somebody to mentor him because obviously nobody comes from anywhere. You know, nobody comes from nowhere. Ryan Tannehill was a a first-round draft pick, so he didn't necessarily have to, like, go in there and, and win the job from anybody. But when you look at it and you say, damn, even you probably had somebody in the coach's corner You had somebody in the locker room that was willing to stick up for you. You had a teammate that was willing to kind of show you the ropes, whether it be a position player or just a veteran in general, and you're just going to deny this kid the opportunity to learn from you, even if he doesn't speak, even if all he does is ask questions. It's your job as a veteran in this league to just help him. He's your teammate. He's not some random person on the practice squad that's, like, annoying, or he's not, like, a, a joint practice from the preseason. Uh, Before the season gets started, where you're having joint practices with the team that you play against, he's your teammate. Now, what happens if you get hurt and Malik look to you for advice, and then Malik stinks it up? Oh, what, because you're going to get your job back? That automatically makes you a better person? No. Or better suited for the job? No. You're not giving your teammates the best possibility to win by not mentoring a guy that just got into the league that obviously has a lot of mechanics to work on. and. Not that Ryan Tannehill is the most mechanically fluid individual, and when it comes to being a quarterback, but you've still been in the league ten years. You still know what defenses look like. You still know um, what situations to put a ball in and where to put a where to put a football in, in certain situations. So it it kind of rubbed me the wrong way that that was his immediate response. It definitely didn't show that he was willing to move on or show that he was willing to kind of let the keys of the kingdom go. And I mean, who is at that age, but I don't know, man, it just looked really, really soft on his part. I wasn't really happy with the reaction. And it, it, like I said before, man, it just shows his weakness.
0: Well, when I look at this situation with Ryan, I think, first of all, I think Ryan is definitely insecure about his job security. And I think that's by and large based off of what happened in the playoffs last year. And let's face it, he sucked in the playoffs last year. I mean, I remember in that game against Cincinnati, you know, granted, this was the first game that Derrick Henry was back in. I know that Derrick Henry was kind of limited in his own way since he missed like the last like two months of the season before that game. But you would think like to have Derrick Henry back in the lineup, that would have made Ryan Tannehill's job a lot easier to work with in that playoff game against Cincinnati. And he threw three interceptions, in- including pretty much the game-losing interception that set up Cincinnati on the, their game winning drive to win them that game to advance to the next round of the playoffs. And when I look back at that game specifically, like Tannehill was solely responsible for that loss on the offensive side of the ball. I'm not saying like he was like the main reason that the whole team lost the game, but he was a, essentially the primary reason on the offensive side of the ball. Because, I mean, for God's sakes, on the defensive side of the ball, Tennessee had like nine sacks against Joe Burrow in that. First matchup of the playoffs. Like, Tannehill's gotta be better than that. And Tannehill's been in the league long enough to know like you can't put yourself in a situation where you're just putting your team in a bind and the defense has to bail you out every single time. So I imagine that you know that playoff performance already kind of set set the uh the players with Tennessee in one way against him. And then when it comes to Malik Willis and the comments that he made, I understand that. When it comes to the quarterback position, it's a very competitive job, and I understand that that Ryan Tannehill's of the mindset that you know the job is probably his, but you know he he wants to compete to get that starting job. But the way he went about it in this case, I I think it was a little bit cruel because for God's sake, Malik Willis just got drafted, and it already you're already kind of making it seem to believe that. Like, this is my job, kid. Like, you're not getting this in any way, shape, or form. Like It's not going to happen. I understand that Tennessee drafted you. Uh, You were, like, a top prospect coming out of the draft this year. But it's like, you got to wait your turn, bud. And and I I think that 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 mindset, I think that was the wrong mindset to go with. I mean, for God's sakes, Malik Willis is 22 years old. And granted, he may become the Tennessee Titans starting quarterback in the near future. And maybe it could potentially be hurried up based on what Ryan Tannehill could present with the Titans next year. Because, I mean, I remember we talked about this uh, on a segment a couple of months back that, you know, there could be a p- real possibility that Tannehill is going to be out the door in Tennessee based off of that last playoff performance that he had. And they look at somebody like Malik Willis and you look at just the athletic uh, gifts that Malik is, you know, that Malik has at his disposal. I mean, it would give Tennessee a completely different look on the offensive side of the ball, and I think it would give them a much more dynamic look on the offensive side of the ball than what they have with Ryan Tannehill. Because let's face it, Ryan Tannehill is basically an average quarterback. He has his flash moments here and there, but by and large, he's been either an average or kind of like a mediocre quarterback throughout his entire career. Whether it was with the whether it was with the uh, the Titans right now. Or back in the day with the Dolphins, he really hasn't done anything to kind of propel the team that he's been on to a championship. Like he hasn't shown me those type of capabilities. That's not to say that Malik Willis is gonna be like a Super Bowl contending quarterback if he gets that starting role um with the Tennessee Titans. But just I thought that Brian Tannehill went about the situation entirely wrong. Um, this should be a situation where you have to provide a little bit of development. Uh, For the guy that just got drafted. But it seems like to me. You know Ryan's definitely focused on getting this starting job. um, Based on his talents. And you know if he looks at it from a competition perspective. I mean that's fine. But to basically dismiss any sort of idea of trying to mentor the kid. Or trying to coach the kid up. After he just got drafted. I I think that's a little bit off-putting. But I mean we'll see what happens. I mean this was one comment made in a press conference. So. We'll see what happens with their relationship moving forward. But I think by and large, this is not a good way to start off a relationship with a quarterback that just got drafted. Um, I I thought he could have handled it better.
1: Like I said, man, that's just, he knows his days are numbered now, whether or not that's because he feels that he is going to lose his job or whether or not that he feels that he's losing the ability to play at a high level. Um, when an organization like Tennessee goes out and drafts somebody like Malik, knowing the history, knowing um uh, the narrative that's gonna come with it, that's a lot of pressure on a veteran quarterback. And again, I'm not necessarily justifying what he said, but he he's definitely probably shook or feeling some type of way, like, damn, you know, like I did everything that I could, Derek was out. But I, I think Malik probably ends up taking this job from him, knowing Matt Rule and knowing how much he likes to not Matt Rule. What's his name? Um, Mike Vrabel. And 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 knowing how much he likes to win, I feel like it's it's kind of like the perfect time for Malik to kind of step into this roster and and I mean help it win. Now whether or not they trade Tannehill or let him go or whatever it is they decide to do, it's it's a whole different category and discussion. But um, yeah, now his response to Malik kind of rubbed me the wrong way for sure, and definitely not an image you want to uphold in the locker room for everybody that's supposed to stand behind the quarterback, which is basically the entire locker room because that's, that's supposed to be your leader. And the first thing you say, right when the new guys come in is say, basically, fuck you, I'm not helping you just doesn't bode. Well, usually in a locker room. And I know you can speak to that a little bit more than I could, but overall just definitely not a good look.
0: Yeah. I mean, we'll see how it goes. You know, maybe this is just just one comment that just got lost in translation, you know, from Ryan's side, but I mean, we'll see what happens, what happens uh, throughout the, um, the summertime and then once we get closer to training camp. Uh, this may just be like a water under the bridge moment down the road. It, it could be. But um if I'm Malik, all right, well got a little bit of a, a little bit of a edge here. You get you know. A little like chip I, on the shoulder to start I was, training. I, yeah. I, I was just about to say that, like a chip on the shoulder is like a, a perfect way to describe it. It's like, all right. You know, Ryan, you know, the starting quarterback's gonna say that about me. I'm like, okay. I see you. You know, Malik could use that to his advantage one day, but um, yeah, just, just, just lean on it. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, if I'm Malik, I'm just kind of biting my time because I know Ryan's probably going to screw up at some point. They're definitely going to give me an opportunity if he, you know, plays subpar football. So I think the best thing that Malik could do is just buy his time and and wait it out because I think he's definitely going to get an opportunity. I don't know if it'll be this year, but I could definitely see if Ryan sucks in a large stretch this year, I could definitely see Malik possibly becoming the starting quarterback, but that would be dependent on whether or not Ryan is playing good football or not, but agreed. We'll see. But I think that just wraps it up for about us. Um, we've not done all of our topics. Uh, I know we're recording a day early. Uh, Kev's got the, uh, the midnight release of Dr. Strange on Thursday night. So that's why we recorded night early. That should definitely be a fun movie to, uh, to expect um i i Kevin i got to ask just before we wrap this up just what are your expectations for doctor strange
1: i mean with marvel doing everything that it's done lately um kind of introducing the multiverse within multiple shows and then of course introducing the concept of um you know wanda going bad after wanda vision and things like that um it really just kind of leaves the door wide open to what routes they want to go down um i'm interested in how they go about explaining the multiverse Uh, The main villain of the movie. We all know it's going to be a shit ton of cameos because that's all that Marvel has done lately. Um, From what I've heard, there are two end clips. So for those of you that actually care and give a shit, don't get up in the theater because you're the person that I point at and laugh and say, ha, look at this idiot. Never watched a superhero movie in his life. But, uh, yeah, no, super excited. Could not wait for to I, genuinely i can't wait for tomorrow in general just because i feel like shit right now and i'm like kind of getting worse as the night goes on so i'm kind of hoping the the medicine i just took will uh help me fight whatever it is it's in my system but yeah no doctor strange is hopefully going to be a really really good movie
0: and uh sam raimi is the director director of film, right and he was the, one the director of the, the
1: first three spider-mans
0: yeah so Spider-Man. you know that stuff is going to be interesting to see how Uh, It plays out on the big screen, but uh, I'll probably get to see it this weekend. So maybe we could do a a movie review. I don't see why not. Going into our Monday episode. I think that'd be fun. Thanks. So, but uh, with that said, uh, once again, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, Whether you were listening to us on the audio platforms or watching us on YouTube, we definitely appreciate the support. Um, Like I said, we recorded a day early. Um, Really going into next week, uh, we'll be focused on pretty much these series, pretty much hitting their end. Because by the time we get to the weekend, um, we'll probably be getting closer to the games three and fours of those respective series. So they'll definitely kind of be like in the middle, you know, getting towards the end of those series. But overall, um, we're pretty much you know going balls to the wall in the second round of the playoffs right now in the NBA. So definitely stay tuned uh, for any more content in regards to uh, regards to that. So. Yeah, I got nothing more to say, and close it on out from here.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's going to be short and sweet. Appreciate you guys for all the support. If you like what you see, subscribe and like and share whatever uh, whatever it is you feel comfortable with. But uh, other than that, we'll be seeing you guys again soon.
0: All right, guys, see you later. Hi, I'm Mark, and I'm Peter.